sometimes things just happen. History happens and there is nothing you can do about it, but it's up to you whether you grab this opportunity. And that was exactly my case. I was sort of getting used to the thought that, yeah, I should do it. Yeah, I can do it. I have all the knowledge. I have all the skills. I am prepared to build first uh, Karolinka Arena in Poland. According to her, it was this sort of in utero exposure that made me immune to mosquito bites. In Barry's Bay, you really can't go anywhere without running into quite a few mosquitoes. They're very prevalent. But even more prevalent and much more pleasant are Polish people. Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. Uh, Polish sausages? No, I don't know anything about that country. <laughs> Pierogies? Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Welcome to Polcast, Pole and all that jazz. I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska. And I'm Tomek Kniat. Welcome to the 63rd episode of Polcast. If you want to join us in promoting Polish culture, history and great work of interesting Poles around the world, because Poland and Poles need good publicity now more than ever. And if you want to hear your name at the beginning of our next episode, please visit our patrons page at mypolcast.com support. You can find all the information about our crowdfunding campaign on our website, mypolcast.com. Thank you to all our supporters. There are things that sound almost impossible. This is one of those. Agnieszka Dedyczy's life is so full of amazing events and opportunities which she says she simply took and made the most of them, that it could probably make a very interesting book. She now writes books herself, on top of everything else she has accomplished in her life. So here is her story of the very beginning of capitalism in Poland and where it took Agnieszka. You'll be surprised. Your life is quite a story. It probably could be made into a really fascinating movie. How did your amazing adventure with banking in this new Poland right after the transformation start? Sometimes things just happen. History happens. And there is nothing you can do about it. But it's up to you whether you grab this opportunity. And that was exactly my case. The Polish economy was about to transform. It was early 90s. I was in my second year, so I was a student at that time. And without thinking, I simply applied for a job in the very first private bank in the brokerage office. Well, a student hoping to get a job in such a highly specialized institution. Wow. Um, you probably must have felt really confident to apply, but I just wonder why you took that bold step. 
I don't really know. Probably it sounded uh, so exotic and um, different to what we were used to at that time. I just did it and I've never regretted my decision. It was the time when Poland was called an emerging market. So there were many foreign investors coming to invest in our market. Really large players. And uh, as I spoke some English, my boss asked me to welcome them to Poland and explain our market. That wasn't easy, as at that time we had uh, only two stocks listed, literally two stocks traded uh, in our little brokerage office and no stock exchange. The stock exchange was to be open within a year or so. There were no regulations, there was nothing, but there was opportunity. So when I first met representatives of Brown Brothers, Harriman, State Street Bank and Fidelity Investment Fund, I did my best to explain to them what does it mean to invest in Poland. I still wonder how I did it and how I succeeded, but I think it comes with age. I was given this opportunity and I didn't think what does it really mean. I didn't dwell on that, right? I just uh, grabbed it and did my best. So I quickly became the first expert in custody services. I don't think most of our listeners, including myself actually, would know what custody services are. If you are in an individual investor, you need just a broker. You go to the broker, you trade in um, stocks, and he settles the transaction for you and he keeps the securities for you. If you are an institutional investor, you need to separate brokerage services from so-called custody services. So you need a broker as well as a bank who will settle your transactions for you and then who will safe keep your securities for you. That's for the safety of uh, the pension fund and investment fund holders. And that's called custody services or security services. So that's how it started. And then another opportunity came. I already had one year experience. I was in my third year of studies and Citibank came to Poland. So I wrote them a letter. I introduced myself. Later on, when we became friends with my former CEO, with my former boss, he told me that I had been their savior. At that time, as well as uh, today, City is the number one in terms of uh, global custody services. Of course, I had no clue at that time uh, remember, it was before uh, the internet era, but I got a job. Of course, if I knew uh, years ago uh, the story, I would have asked them for much higher salary, but still I do not uh, regret my decision. I became the first person running the custody department uh, I joined the pioneer team of uh, Citibank. Uh, they had uh, about 20 employees at that time, and I made use of that. I was given a unique uh, opportunity to become a part of uh, history. 
uh, as I participated in launching the Warsaw Stock Exchange. So from two stocks, we moved to five stocks listed on the Warsaw Stock Exchange. We launched the central depository and the clearing house uh, to settle all these transactions, as well as we um, invented all the regulations um, pertaining to security services. In a couple of years, uh, I became not only a member of the supervisory board of the central depository, uh, as well as the founder and the first CEO of the Custodians Banks Board, but also the head of a um, huge unit uh, within, within Citibank. Well, that must have been an extremely educating experience. What did you learn? No, maybe not just about banking, but more in terms of, I don't know, life lessons. I've learned a lot from that experience. First, assume you know nothing. Second, assume you can always learn. That's a start. And uh, last but not least, be honest. Never make promises to your customers or to anybody if you are not sure that you will be able to keep them. Well, I'm sure you must have had dozens of incredible experiences and amazing stories. Can you tell us one of those stories, something something that you will always remember? I remember a very funny story that happened to me when uh, I went to London to sell our services to international brokers. And I was in a meeting with Goldman Sachs or, uh, or another uh, huge broker. Just men and me uh, explaining stupid rules of the Polish stock market. They wanted us to do uh, for them short sales. Uh, it means that you sell stocks today, you repurchase them tomorrow, and you uh, benefit uh, from the price difference. There was no such possibility in the local regulations at that time, so um, you could only pretend you do that. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, it meant you lost your ownership in the meantime. Our competitors were uh, offering that possibility to our customers. I didn't want it to, uh, to do that because in the worst case scenario, uh, I wouldn't be able to protect them as, uh, as their custodian. But they kept uh, pushing. Uh, saying your competitors uh, do that, your competitors say they are able to do so. I didn't know what else to say, so I told them, guys, I'm an honest person. I make promises in order to keep them. That's why I never got married. There was silence, then laugh, and we won the contract. How do you feel about all that experience? I'm proud. I've been part of uh, the original history of the Polish capital market. I'm proud where I am now, because now I'm writing my own history, as I'm a writer. Three years ago, I left City, and at the same year, my first book was published. The fifth one will have its premiere in April this year. Well, five books, congratulations. But I wonder why, being so successful in your career, you quit and you started your writing adventure. Why? 
Again, I think it's about honesty. A few years ago, I realized that my old dreams about becoming an uh, important banker have been fulfilled. I was a director at that time, a senior VP, and in the meantime, I became mom. And this new role uh, has also opened new opportunities for me. For instance, together with my son, we wrote a beautiful kid's story based on his own story. He was uh, four years old at that time. So what is this book that you both wrote? It's a cute story about a little alien who comes to our planet from the planet Uranus. And we, meaning my son Tony, myself and uh, Tony's dad, we teach uh, this little alien everything about friendship, everything about the planet Earth, and its customs. For instance, hugging. They don't know how to hug out there in the space. I hope you will be able to enjoy the story uh, very soon as we have translated it uh, into uh, English. It will be called Team from Outer Space. It will be soon available on Amazon as ebook, and uh, we are looking for a publisher to uh, publish it in the form of a physical book. Uh, so uh, if you know any publisher interested in that, uh, that would be fantastic. So how's your life now at this post-banking um, artistic stage? So now I live, right, uh, run a charity, which I founded um, 20 years ago. Uh, it's called Let's Help Children. And what we do is uh, we um, sponsor scholarships and buy medical equipment for kids uh, who had not been uh, as lucky as our own children. Sometimes we are not satisfied with our own lives. There are always people whom we can help. And this is what I write about. This is what I teach about as I run uh, development workshops called... Uh, dreams with the expiration date and it's always about hope and it's always about our strength to change things for better first to change them for better for us and uh, if we are satisfied with our lives we can help others for more about Agnieszka her story her passion and her projects please visit our website at mypodcast.com This is another segment resulting from our collaboration with a group of students from Poland, History Buffs, who created a very interesting website, greatpols.pl. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for another episode of Polcast. My name is Barbara Cargill and I am in charge of the Great Poll segment of Polcast, in which my guests and I talk about a famous poll. Today I am joined by Anna Musiał. Today's influential poll is Marian Smoluchowski, a pioneer in the field of statistical physics and the man who explained why the sky is blue. What did Smoluchowski's work contribute to the modern understanding of physics? Um, Marian Smoluchowski was a very committed and passionate scientist. Um, he mostly contributed 
his time towards describing and explaining phenomena connected with the kinetic theory of matter. And during his lifetime, this field was only just developing. Many of his discoveries influenced the way that scientists now look at certain physical processes, uh, especially connected with the, the behavior of gases. He is also mentioned as a great contributor and forerunner of development of statistical physics. Um, as in his work, he applied the mathematical principles of probability to describe the, the motion of particles. Um, and he was the first to observe and state a random motion of particles in gases, uh, which helped him to note the dispersion of light in the atmosphere and to explain why the sky is blue. Um, but I think that the fact that his most important research was mentioned in over 6,000 scientific works is the best indicator of how Smolochowski has contributed to our current understanding of physics. Uh, his ideas are described as the most creative application of the probability theory to the description of physical phenomena. Uh, what was his most outstanding discovery? Um, it's quite hard to point out only one of his achievements as the most important. His different discoveries have contributed to the field of science in various areas. His discovery of a random motion of particles in gases and liquids is extremely important, as it provides a final argument towards the existence of atoms. Um, but I think that an equation Marian Smolochowski published in 1916 is also worth mentioning. It was named after him, and it provides a mathematical description of the way in which particles clump together over time. Um, it helps to understand such processes as polymerization or emulsification, which are currently used in the production of countless modern materials and sub substances. Um, as I understand, polymerization and emulsification is used in such materials as, for example, lotions, right? Yes, that's right. So, is it true that had it not been for his premature death, Smolochowski would probably have received a Nobel Prize? Um, yes, many people truly believe so. And this is due to the fact that his work was an inspiration for scientists who did receive Nobel Prizes. Uh, for example, in 1925, Richard Zygmondi was awarded one in chemistry for his experimental research on the concept initiated indeed by Smolochowski. 1926, Jean Perron's Nobel Prize in Physics and Theodor Svedberg's in Chemistry were also closely connected with Smolochowski's work. Um, Smolochowski's work is often used in connection with that of the all-time genius, Albert Einstein. What is exactly the Einstein-Smolochowski relation? Mm, so, between the years 1915 and 1916, both Smolochowski and Einstein independently released very important papers that successfully explained the behavior of molecules in gases and liquids. Um, methods used by them were completely different, but the results highly correlated. In his words, Smolochowski again proved that statistical methods can be used to describe the motion of particles. Uh, both Smolochowski and Einstein 
contributed to the formation of an equation describing the fusion of gases, and this equation is known today as the Einstein-Smolhovsky relation. How did Smolhovsky's interest in physics start in the first place? Um, at school, Marian Smolhovsky was always perceived as an excellent student. Apparently, he was more committed to humanities than science at the beginning of his education. Uh, his direct passion for physics was born a little bit later when he attended college. His physics teacher, Alois Hofle, wrote in his comments about students that Smolhovsky was about the best of them all. But Smolhovsky's commitment to, to physics to physics has mostly grown when he graduated from college and when he went to the University of Vienna. There, there he was taught by well-known and esteemed professors who helped him with conducting his first researches in the field. Where did he grow up and go to school? Um, Smolhovsky was born in 1872 in the village near Vienna. Uh, his father, Wilhelm, was a well-known clerk, uh, and his mother, Teofilia Szczepanowska, came from a notable Polish family. The position and heritage of Smolhovsky's parents during that time gave their family a high social status, so naturally they wanted their son to receive the best education and send him to a high-rank, prestigious college. Um, therefore, Smolhovsky went to Theranasium in Vienna, which was one of the most renowned schools in Europe. What kind of college did he attend? As I mentioned, after graduating from college, he decided to study physics at the University of Vienna. Uh, he was taught by very talented scientists, for example, Franz Exner and Joseph Stefan. For him, it was a very inspiring environment in which he became truly devoted to the physics field and produced his first scientific pieces. Smolohovsky was a very successful student. He was awarded a doctorate with the highest distinction when he was 23 years old. It opened for him a possibility to travel and work after in laboratories all across Europe. He visited Paris, Berlin, and Glasgow, where he produced several pieces with Lord Kelvin. Thank you so much, Anya, for sharing the amazing story of Smolochowski with us. Now we truly know why he was such an amazing public figure. All thanks to you. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us once again for this episode of Polecast. And we hope you also join us next month for the next episode of Great Polls on Polecast. Don't forget to check out our website, greatpolls.pl. And thank you for listening once again. Bye. In one of our recent episodes, you heard the story of Kanuk Vodka. Adam, who couldn't buy in Canada vodka that he liked, decided to start producing one. But what if your passion is a sport requiring a specialized facility? Like, I don't know, speed skating, diving from a 10 meter tall tower, or ski jumping? Would you build a tower like that? What about curling? Adela Walczak lives in Poland a country without any curling traditions and without any curling facilities.
until now. Because Adela decided to build a world-class curling club in her hometown, Łódź, in the center of Poland. I had the pleasure of interviewing Adela in her very own curling club. But imagine my surprise when I heard this Canadian accent there. Nicholas, what are you doing here? That's a, that's a long story. Uh, originally from London, uh, I lived in Edmonton as well, and then I decided to move to the Netherlands for a few years. And after the Netherlands, I lived in Spain, which is where I've been there for about the last five years. Um, and I've been involved with the Spanish curling program and playing with other Spanish curlers for the last three years. Um, so we decided to come up here and play in this tournament here in, in Lodz. And you're playing as a part of the Spanish team, right? Well, we're a team from Spain. Uh, we're not the Spanish team yet, uh, but we hope to be. Um, so we just formed about six months ago, so basically we're new this year as a team. The three other boys are from, uh, they, they play on the Spanish junior national team, and uh, we hope to train together and, and hopefully represent Spain. So this is your first time in this curling facility here in Poland? Yes, yeah, it's the first time here. I actually know Casper, um, who's one of the organizers here. I met him in Fusen in uh, this past summer, and he, he mentioned that they had a brand new facility, so of course I wanted to come out and uh, check it out. So what's your impression? Uh, this facility is amazing. It's an absolutely beautiful facility. I think they've done a really good job um, getting it set up. They've done, I mean, they've, they've, they've just done a spectacular job. The ice is wonderful. Um, I mean, it's their first year, so I think in the years to come, they'll, they'll, they'll be able to even improve the ice, improve the conditions, um, and it'll be, a, it'll be a joy to come back and play again, I think. Are you going to come back? If I'm coming back to this tournament, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I would love to come. It's been a great event. I've really enjoyed it. People are really friendly. Ice has been great. Rocks have been great. Uh, good competition as well. I mean, it's a good level of competition, especially to get in form and to practice. Um, I would definitely come back, yeah. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. That was Nicholas Shaw. I hope now you can't wait to hear Adela Walczak. Curling and Poland are not the two words that we usually hear in one sentence. But here I am, sitting in Łódź, Poland, watching a very well-organized international curling tournament. I have a pleasure of watching it with one of the people responsible for both curling in Poland, this tournament, and this beautiful facility. Adela Walczak is also a reigning curling champion of Poland, two times champion. Let's start with the most simple and most obvious question. Why? Why, why curling? Why curling in Poland? It was surprisingly, uh, out of all the winter sports, uh, which we, we generally in Poland are pretty good at winter sports because we have a good winter and then people are very keen to do a lot of sports in the winter. Well, curling is the one and only sport which is really not very well known and not very well developed here yet. So we try to change that. And uh, why I got interested in curling? Well, it was a simple story. I just saw curling on TV and... Uh, for me, it was like instantly I I fell in love with it, and I thought, my God, that's the only thing I would like to do in the world out of all the things I would like to play curling. 
and only play curling. That's just something amazing. I, I, I just fell in love with it. Um, but that was when I was a child and curling wasn't present in Poland at that point. Um, so I had to wait and um, in the meantime I, I saw curling in Switzerland for the first time. And then a little bit later when I um, went to university I heard that some some people at university sports club are trying to put together a, a curling club. And and so I contacted them and I, I I joined the club and that was 13 years ago and I'm still playing curling and I believe doing quite a lot to help develop the sport in in, in our country. So you are not only a curling player, an European class player, you are also a curling club founder, Father. owner, creator. Yeah, all of that. So how did that start? Well, the, the situation was difficult here in Poland. Uh, we had um, around 300 uh, people who were really passionate about curling and they wanted to play. And out of those 300, maybe we had uh, like 10 really good competitive teams. But the problem was that we had no, no curling guys, uh, nowhere uh, we could practice all, all season long and nowhere we could play our our tournaments on, on good quality ice and so we felt that this is really holding us back and then we thought this is hopeless a lot of people went were trying to get the uh, local authorities to help uh, raise money for to build a, a curling club somewhere in Poland but it it all really went down to the simple question, does the city want, prefers to build a curling arena which will be used by 50 people or uh, does it want to build a swimming pool or a volleyball arena that will be used by th thousands of people? So uh, we knew after many trials that um, curling arena cannot be built with public funding uh, in, a, in our country, that it has to be private um, project to help the to help curling get, get started in Poland. Well, knowing that, I, I still hoped that it would be someone else who would do it. And I was waiting and waiting. And in the meantime, I, I was traveling to Slovakia or to Scotland or to Germany to practice for uh, for the Europeans that we qualified or, or just to get better. And I got really tired of that. I thought it's not enough to go th three times in a season for, for three weekends to, to Slovakia and practice there. We need to do it every day. We need to have curling guys here. Uh, in Poland, maybe in Łódź, because Łódź is in the center, in center of Poland, and it's a really good location that people could come here from all over Poland. And uh, I was sort of getting um, uh, used to the thought that maybe it should be me getting care of this uh, big project and. Uh, at some point, I just uh, I just thought, yeah, I should do it. Yeah, I can do it. I I have all the knowledge. I have all the skills. I I I am prepared to to build first uh, curling arena in Poland. And I got really 
great support from my parents to do this, who, who helped me fi financially and also supported me in every way I, like you, I could think of. So it took us uh, about three years from the beginning, from the, the decision that we, we want to uh, do it to the opening of the curling arena. Uh, it was it was a crazy what crazy three years a roller coaster of of uh, of good things and bad things and problems. Do you mind sharing the most scary moment or experience through that process? Well, we had the location chosen for the curling arena, uh, and suddenly people who lived in the, this area started protesting against. The curling arena being built on the opposite opposite street of their houses, because they were afraid that it would be noisy, and, and they just preferred to have a grass there, so they can walk their dogs there. And they were so successful that they blocked our our project, and we had to start all over again, and we had to look for another location and start all over again, redesign the building. It was a really a tough, tough moment at this point. Well, I'm, I'm really impressed with what you built here, but it's not up to me to describe it. So please tell our listeners, what did you build here? <laughs> well, basically, it's a curling arena, not, not, very, not very different from curling arenas you would see around there anywhere in the world. And we have four curling sheets in here, all together with a bar and then uh, some viewing area, uh, changing rooms, so all the, all the necessary stuff. So how big is curling in Poland now? Right now, we... Like we used to have, we have around 300 curlers and and a few good teams that like to compete uh, internationally. Can you tell us more about the tournament that is being played today? Well, we we knew that we want to fill this arena with various competitions and uh, that uh, we would like to give the opportunity for Polish uh, curlers to play with teams from abroad. For us, this is a, a good uh, preparation for the nationals that will uh, be hosted here. Actually, we had four, 24 teams here, eight women's teams and 16 men's teams playing in a separate events. And out of those teams, uh, we have eight eight. Uh, uh, international teams from even one from Japan <laughs> and from Czech Republic, Belarus, Lithuania, Slovenia, Spain. So, yeah, pretty international tournament. And this is not your first tournament in this facility? No, no we, we knew that uh, we'd like to organize a world curling tour event uh, right immediately in the, in the first season. And we thought mixed doubles tournament would be great to have because mixed doubles is something that is really that really needs um, some work here uh, in Poland. And we had a, a full field of, of great international mixed doubles teams and then Olympic medalists and world champions. So it was really great. 
Uh, is curling in Poland any different? Yeah, teams like to invent their uh, their names, uh, sometimes funny names, but they're not usually identified by the name of the skip as, as elsewhere in the world, but they have funny names like Monkey Man. Since the facility is is located in the center of Poland, I understand you have members from clubs around the country coming here for practice. Yeah, but we have to say that it's not like in Canada that we have members of our club. It's just there are a lot of clubs, but these are organizations that do not have their own club, their own rings. They just exist as, as organizations that have players and teams and those teams and those players come here to practice. They they buy ice from us and, and, and they they play on it. When I was talking with other players here, I heard that they just come for a weekend or, or so? Yeah, well, they, they usually come for weekends uh, because uh, they, they work and, and so on. So the weekends are really busy here with a lot of people coming from south and north and everywhere in, in Poland. And during the weekdays, the, the arena is mostly used by local people or, or perhaps curlers from Warsaw, the capital city that is located really one hour by car, one half an hour by car. So, so people from Warsaw clubs can, can come here after work. And do you draw any interest from outside of the country, maybe? Absolutely, yes. Uh, we have um, training camps uh, for uh, uh, curlers from, from Ukraine or Belarus come here for training camps. So do not only uh, serve as a curling arena for Poland, but also for our neighboring countries as well. The first season is slowly coming to the end. What do you want to do next? Where do you see this curling club, your curling club, your curling facility? Where do you want to see it in three or five years? We would like to have a lot of people coming to, to play in our competitions, not only from Poland, but from Czech Republic, Slovakia, Lithuania, Latvia, and our, our neighbor, all, the, all the neighboring countries. So we can have a lot of international good, good level curling here. And I am hoping that this will help our Polish curlers to uh, to develop and and get better. And maybe this will help us to reach a good result at the Europeans, at the world, and uh, that curling uh, will grow and will be just as popular and as other winter sports in Poland. I, uh, I really hope that curling would be like ski jumping in Poland. <laughs> I think that's the main winter sport we, we would need to compete, keep, compete with. But the funny thing is that all the po Polish people love ski jumping. We have just as many ski jumpers in Poland as we have the curlers. Well, you built the facility, so congratulations from the bottom of my heart. You've built it, and as they say, I'm sure they will come. So I wish you all the best. Thank you very much. <laughs> well, that's really interesting because, first of all, I don't know if everybody knows, I'm sure people don't, that Tomek and his family, like both Tomek and his wife, Anya, and both his sons uh, and their sons play curling. They're very serious curling um, 
what do I say? Curling who? Curling, I would say players or, or yeah, curling, curling family. I, I keep saying that, you know, my wife plays curling once a week uh, or curls. Uh, Victor, our youngest son, uh, curls uh, twice a week and I curl twice a year. Mm-hmm. Uh, But yes, it was an adventure to me. It was quite an experience to see a really world-class facility built single-handedly with help of a lot of people. But Adela, see her determination right there in Poland, uh, in, in sport that you and I didn't know at all when we were growing up in Poland, uh, and see quality of players coming from across the Europe to play there. Uh, that was impressive. It's, what do you think there is a chance that the sport will become one of the most popular winter sports? It doesn't have to be winter, though, right? Mogosio, it's not a chance. It's happening. How? Oh. Uh, the, the night when we are recording this conversation of ours, there is a world uh, mixed doubles uh, mm-hmm. championship going on, and Poland, for the first time, is represented there. Uh-huh. It is happening. You know, when, when you think about it, curling is not more expen- any more expensive sport than skiing. And the popularity of, of, of skiing is, is very high in Poland. Uh, ski jumping, Adela is referring to ski jumping. We have 50 competitive, competitive ski jumpers in Poland at all. And Poland is, is very competitive when it comes to ski jumping. So... Curling is coming to Poland big time. And if you want to learn more about curling in Poland, of course, visit our website at mypolcast.com. Smacznego. We're here talking about our love for eating Polish. My name is Peter. And my name is Laura. And we wrote two heritage Polish cookbooks called Polish Classic Recipes and Polish Classic Desserts, where all the recipes have been handed down from previous generations. But updated for modern kitchens, so no more pinch of this or a glass of that. Easter's passed. All the leftovers were devoured quickly and with a lot of lip smacking. And the freezer is kind of empty. Here in Virginia, where we live, Spring has clearly sprung. The bright yellow daffodils have been out for a while, the cherry, plum, and pear trees are in full bloom, and our magnolia is showing off its brilliant hues of purple and pink, while Mama and Papa Robin are hanging around, trying to find a place to build their nest. The other evening, I asked Laura what foods first came to mind when thinking about spring, and she quickly said, peas and coral. That was not a surprise, because we had just discovered that our one and only sorrel plant had survived the winter and is actually ready for the first harvest. Are you familiar with sorrel? In Polish, it's stuff. It's a perennial leafy green cultivated as a garden herb or salad green. Its leaves look like baby spinach, and it has a taste similar to fresh spinach, but with a distinct lemony back note. We often see sorrel leaves sold at local farmer's markets. So I dove into my collection of Polish cookbooks and realized that pea and sorrel soup is quite popular in Polish cuisine. Then I put several recipes out on the counter next to the stove. 
Peter got out our super heavy, big yellow five quart pot and I proceeded to create my own Polish style spring pea and sorrel soup. Which we then had for an awesome lunch, thank you very much. The peas give it color and body while the sorrel is bright and fresh with just a hint of lemon. The soup is perfect, served just warm with a crusty French baguette and sweet butter, a glass of wine, and of course a nap to follow. Life is good. So here's an overview of the recipe. You'll need two tablespoons of butter, two large shallots thinly sliced, four cups of chicken broth, and two cups of peas. Frozen peas are healthier than canned peas, plus they have that amazing bright green color. So you'll need a cup of sorrel leaves, some flour, sour cream, an egg yolk, softened butter, lemon juice, and of course, and as always, salt and pepper to taste. In your own big pot or four-quart saucepan, melt the butter and saute the shallots. Cut the stems from the sorrel and give them a rough chop. Add the chicken broth, peas, and sorrel to the pot and bring it all to a boil. Reduce the heat, cover, and simmer for about 15 minutes. Don't forget to stir. Using a blender, puree the pea and sorrel mixture until it's smooth and return it to your pot and reheat. Mix your flour with the sour cream and add that to the pot. Bring it back to a boil and take it off the heat. Mix the egg yolk with remaining butter and add that to the soup. Now taste. You should get a lemony back note on your tongue. But if you want more, just add a little lemon juice a bit at a time until your mouth says stop. Season with salt and pepper and taste again. Heat it well, but don't let it boil. So this may seem like a lot of steps, but it's really rather straightforward. The sorrel adds this bright, fresh, lemony note to the soup like no other herb. Laura's experiment really paid off, and we hope you'll try it. The full recipe for this soup and information about our heritage cookbooks is on our website, www.polishclassiccooking.com. Just scroll down to the article posted on April 12th, 2013. Smachnego. Wow, sorrow, the nightmare of my childhood. <laughs> no, seriously, but you know what? I think this, I was just like listening to this uh, recipe and it sounds really interesting. And I think what it is, is that what, most of us in Poland, we were fed spinach yep. in, in a form that was totally inedible, honestly horrifying. I just can't even stop I mean, I can't even think about it. And I also remember this soup made of sorrel soup with without all these nice things and uh, with egg inside, like hard-boiled egg, which was, to me, a horrible, horrible soup. But yours sounds completely different. If you're interested in the Polish heritage in Canada, you should definitely visit a beautiful lake region of Ontario called Kashubi. With its gorgeous nature and wildlife, it is also of special historic significance to Poles living in Canada. Krystyna Lagowski is a Toronto-based freelance writer specializing in automotive, the author of drivelikeagirl.ca. She is of Polish-Jewish ancestry. 
Her obsessions, as she calls them, include Barbara Streisand, old Eastern European cars, Judaism, Burmese cats, and the great Canadian outdoors. And that last passion, combined with her Polish roots, are probably the reason why she is so much in love with Kashobe. Here is Kristina's story of this fascination, which she entitled, Were Even the Mosquitoes Speak Polish? So when I first came to Barry's Bay, I was a fetus. And I know this because there's a picture of my mother in a rowboat with her blouse billowing about that shows that she's already about five months pregnant with me. According to her, it was this sort of in utero exposure that made me immune to mosquito bites. In Barry's Bay, you really can't go anywhere without running into quite a few mosquitoes. They're very prevalent, but even more prevalent and much more pleasant are Polish people. The area covering Berries Bay and Vilno and Cumbermere in Renfrew County along Highway 60 and Highway 62 is known as Kashubi. Your GPS will show it as a tiny pinpoint, but in fact, it covers much greater ground. It's something deeper and it's more rarefied. It's sort of a vast community of souls bound together by their common ancestry. This is the site of the first Polish settlement in Canada. That's right. There's a sign in Vilno that tells you about the hardy group of Polish immigrants who came to this area in 1864. It goes back to the 1770s, which were the times of partition when Poland ceased to exist as an independent state. It was annexed by Russia, Prussia, and Austria. And it's in the northwestern part of Poland, which is called Pomorza or Pomerania, that we find the Kashubs. They spoke their own language. They had a very rich, distinct culture. The land was made up of rolling hills, sparkling lakes and rivers, forests, and sandy soil. The Kashubs were a very deeply religious people. They were proud of their faith, their nationality, and traditions. They had clung to their identity in the face of numerous occupations and persecutions. But in the 1850s, things got nasty. The occupying Prussians mounted a very oppressive regime, and they appropriated farms and forbid the use of the Kashub language in schools, offices, and churches. German teachers were sent to instruct and indoctrinate the children. Kashubs who stood up to the regime and refused Prussian citizenship were expropriated and removed. One of the last straws came when the Prussians, in an attempt to force the sale of land, forbid the Kashubs to build homes on their own land. So they lived in barns, gypsy wagons, and even caves. Now, when Thomas P. French came along with his offer of free land, 100 acres, to be given to any settler that would put in a state of cultivation, that is farming land over four years, building a house, and staying in what is now Renfrew County, it was pretty sweet. The costumes were they're more than ready to escape their persecution, and the thought of spending weeks at sea and forging a home in the wilderness, well, this was pretty appealing. They departed from Bremen and Hamburg, and in 1860 at that time, it took about two months to cross the Atlantic, and it was a pretty harrowing voyage. And some of them even died and were buried at sea, which was a bleak beginning for a new life abroad. There is a lovely painting by Ukrainian-Canadian artist William Kurelik, which is called The Vilna Pioneers. It shows a couple of newly arrived Kashubs making camp in a small clearing under the felled bough of a pine. 
a bonfire is sending clouds of smoke wafting around the couple, and in the distance you can see mist rising off the dappled lake. It looks so idyllic. But the reality is that, you know, at that time there would have been no protection from the elements, and that would have included swarms of mosquitoes and black flies and other bugs. And the clearing was probably laboriously hewed out with crude axes and shovels. The earliest arrivals had names like Schulest, Etmaiski, Kulas, Piekarski, and Dombrowski, which are names that still flourish in the community today. But even if, as they registered, the spelling of the Polish names was problematic. Get ready for this. Because in records dated, dated September 1859 and a census dated 1861, the name Stipio appears also as Szypior and then Chipior. Szulist appears as Szulist and then Sulist. Zazarski appears as Jezarski and then Zeski. Well, today Kashuba boasts towering pines and shimmering lakes and craggy terrain. And it's hard to imagine the incredible hardships the early pioneers endured in their first years working on the Canadian Shield. The winters went on forever and the growing season was, you know, very brief. The land was challenging with shallow soil and scattered rocks and boulders. But eventually it yielded grain and vegetables and hay. There was barely enough to live on. But the truth was the income from the land was meager. So the real opportunity was in the flourishing timber industry because Kashuba and the surrounding area was home to bountiful forests of pines and poplars and birch and cedar and many other trees. So in the winter when farming was impossible, the men of the community would work as lumberjacks in the lumber camps. They would earn cash with which to buy shoes and fabric, jackets and hats and other goods. There were great distances between farms, and this was a particular problem for attending Mass. The Kashubs were fervent Catholics and would spend up to three hours walking to the nearest church in Brudenell. Otherwise, they would meet at a cross, erected at a crossroads, and say their rosary and prayers. But although life was hard, hey, there were also good times. A wedding was a great occasion for a party, Kashuba style, and these would go on for days at a time. It would be held in, in, in a barn, and the entire neighborhood would attend. There would be mountains of food. There was everything from venison to fish and stews and soups and tables groaning with desserts. And, of course, there was booze. It was homemade moonshine, and there was plenty of it. So the early costumes worked hard, but they also played hard. Another occasion, maybe not as happy, was the death of a beloved member of the community, when there would be a pusta nuts, when everybody would go into mourning. A cross was hung, and a clock showed the time of death of the loved one. After a church service, neighbors would gather, singing and praying all night long. This night without sleep was known as the pusta nuts, or the empty night. Another tradition among the Kashuba settlers was to take a handful of soil that they had brought from Poland and they would enter it in their coffin. They were buried with a piece of their homeland where their heart still remained. To learn more about Kashuba, please visit our website at mypolcast.com. You've been listening to the 63rd episode of Polcast.
Podcast is created, recorded and produced in Toronto by Małgorzata Bonikowska and Tomek Kniat. For a lot of additional information, multimedia, links, please visit our website at mypodcast.com. And while you're there, please share your comments, your reactions and suggest ideas. If you know of any interesting story that we should cover on our podcast, please let us know. Please remember about our crowdfunding campaign. Like all other podcasts, we do count and depend on our listeners. As we said before, what is free for you to listen to is not free for us to make. So please support podcast. Go to mypodcast.com slash support and make a pledge. If you like what you heard, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to rate this episode on your favorite podcast app. Well, this was my last podcast. Uh, due to time constraints, uh, I need to thank you, Mogosha, for what three, four years of working on it on this project together. Uh, this podcast wouldn't be what it became without you. Uh, I'm very pleased with what we were able to accomplish. Uh, thank you for everything. Thank you to our listeners and all the best. Well, of course, it was your idea. You once called me and said, hey, let's do a podcast together. And we actually have been doing this for, I don't know, maybe not four years. I think you're, you're just exaggerating. It's probably a lot less than four years. But who knows? Maybe. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe from the idea. And, and, yeah, you know, from the, maybe is, the idea. Life is full of ideas, but the ideas are just ideas. Ideas are uh, maybe the seeds but, and they need to, you know, there is a long way from the, from the seed to a fruit. Well, anyway, um, yeah, we're all saying goodbye to you, which is sad. Polkas has been yours and mine, so now it's going to become mine. We definitely want to, I mean, I definitely want to continue. Uh, I am used to saying we, so I am definitely going to continue. But uh, thank you. I mean, it's been great fun. A lot of, uh, a lot of amazing um, awards that we got and uh, discussions that we had and people that we managed to uh, introduce to our listeners. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you so much. And maybe one day you'll find more time. Who knows? You never know. You never know. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. And thank you for listening to podcast. And please do not stop. Absolutely. Keep being with us. Uh, the next episode, 64, will definitely be different. I don't know how it's going to be, but it's being uh, thought over. I have uh, some ideas. We will see. It's going to be different. What can you do? Thank you, Tomek. It's been lots of fun. Can't wait to listen to the next episode. Thank you, Mogosha.